We are uh, going to be in the book of Acts. If you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 1. I'm excited about this morning and uh, what we're going to cover in that introduction of Acts. So open up Acts chapter 1. And uh, we're going to start off a little bit different this morning because we've got this really, really interesting scene in the text. It's kind of an awkward scene. It's different. It's unique. So here's what I need. I need like uh, maybe four to six volunteers. Just, it doesn't matter who you are. You don't have to have any skills. Just volunteer. Come on up. Okay, don't worry. It's real simple. It's not a lot to it. Okay, we got one already. We got two, three, four. Okay, good. Five, come on. Yeah, this is good. Okay. These are all fellas. No ladies? Yes. At least one representing. Okay. So here, get, get a little closer to each other. Okay. And we're going we're gonna to act out this little passage. Okay. It's real simple. You don't have to do very much to it, okay? I'll, I'll show you a slide on the screen to give you a little idea of the passage. This is the ascension of Jesus. I picked this slide with him with the best pe- pair of abs ever, right? I mean, Jesus is just oh rocking the six-pack, really, really hardcore. Okay, and this is the ascension, right? We're at the, the, the part of the story, the part of the journey of Jesus where he is ascending He's leaving. He's not with us anymore in, in the sense of His bodily presence on earth. And so here's what I need you guys to act out. You need to act out the part of the disciples, right? The disciples were all in the presence of Jesus. He, it says this cloud came and He was taken up. And what I need you to do is do this. I just need you to like stare up. Kind of like fix your eyes on a point. And you're just looking off into the distance. Okay, you're going to hold this for a little while. It's not very difficult. You're just kind of gazing. You're looking. You're, you're start to get into that place of like, oh, my best friend forever just left. You're feeling like anxious and worried. Like, what do I do now? Maybe the same look you have when you drop your iPhone. Like, oh, my word. It's going to break. And, or you lost your puppy or something. Like, so just look up there and, and feel that as we read the passage. Okay? So... These are the disciples, they're all around Jesus. He, he just gets done saying some things to him, and the text says this, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. He was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men and women of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So you have this picture of the disciples. They're all staring up into sky up into space it just says they're looking up they're wondering they're watching it, it very much reminds me of this time that I had with my son just the other day it was after Easter at Easter he got this balloon it was this helium balloon right and this is what I love about Mason he just looks at the world differently and so instead of just holding the balloon he's like dad I'm gonna set it free it's gonna be so good right so he goes out into into the yard and he sets this balloon free it kind of looked like this here's the next slide um, you see this balloon just floating up into the distance, and so he calls me outside. He's like, Dad, you got to see this, right? And he and I just did this for like five minutes. We're like, look, it's floating, and we're like, can you still see it? Yeah, I can see it up there, and, and we're just looking. So imagine this scene. Jesus is with 
all of the disciples. He says to them, hey, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses and all around. And then all of a sudden the cloud comes and he's gone. And these two guys, it says, in white robes come to this group of people. And they say, what are you doing? Why are you staring up at the sky? Why are you doing this? In fact, the, the phrase is somewhat like this. It says, why do you do nothing more than stand looking up toward heaven? Why do you, why do you just look at toward heaven? What are you doing? Now, what's interesting in the passage right before this, Luke is saying at the very beginning, he said, uh, what I started to teach you, Theophilus, was that all of these things would happen. Jesus would do this. He would teach this. All this stuff would happen, right? He starts describing it. And then we talked about this last week. Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going to leave and then I want you to wait here for the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? So maybe, maybe they're there. Jesus leaves and then they go, well, he told us to wait. How long do you think we have to do this? It's going to happen soon. I'm getting dizzy. My neck hurts. Like, you know, maybe who knows how long they were there. But all of a sudden, these two guys come down and they say, hey, what are you staring at? You got work to do. There's things to have happen. All right, give them a hand. So all these people are staring up, right? And they, these two guys come and they say, hey, what are, what are you staring at? There's work to be done. You have, you have things to do. See, the ascension of Jesus radically changed something. It was such a powerful event because at that moment, the mission that was Jesus's was no longer His, but was theirs. The torch had been passed. Now it's time for the disciples, for the followers, for us to be in on the action, right? To have all of the responsibility. And so He says this, You will be my witnesses. That's the main idea of the text. That Jesus had just got done saying to them, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now these are Jesus' parting thoughts. His final words. Final instructions on earth. He's with them for three and a half years. He's hanging out. They're doing everything together. They're watching miracles. They're seeing Him teach. I mean, he gives his life, he comes back to life, he hangs out with them 40 days, and then he gets to this point where he gives a final instruction and then he's gone. It's parting words. I found it interesting, not so much just what Jesus said, but what he didn't say. Do you think about that? Here's what Jesus didn't say. He didn't talk about community or belonging. I think it would have been interesting if you would have said, hey, listen, all of you standing here, now you are a family. The family of God. That you are the very body of Christ. That you're a tribe, a holy nation. You are a group of people that should band together. That all of those one another's I've been talking about, serving one another, praying for one another, working with one another, bearing one another's burdens, all that stuff, live that out among you. And then he was gone. But he didn't say that. He could have also majored on something that I would have thought he would have majored on, which is love. But he didn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't say, hey, love your neighbor as yourself, for his final thoughts. 
He didn't say, the whole world will know that you're my disciples because of your love for one another. He didn't. He also didn't say anything about identity. That would have been another interesting thing. For him to talk to the disciples, to look him into the eye and say, hey, listen, you now, because of my death, burial, and resurrection, you now have new life as a follower of me. Like, the Father sees you as holy. He's adopted you as sons and daughters. That you are chosen by Him. In fact, He doesn't see you as a sinner any longer if you have a relationship with Him. That everything is wiped clean. That you walk in holiness. That He sings over you. That He enjoys you. That He wants you to know that you are deeply loved. He could have shared any and all of that. But He doesn't. Instead, He says, for His final words, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. See, this passage is all about mission. Something we talk about quite often around here. That all of you that follow Jesus, the text is saying to you that you have the Holy Spirit and you have a task. That we are to be witnesses to the earth. He's pretty plain and simple. He's pretty direct to the point. In fact, he speaks about it a little bit differently than he does with all of his other commissions. You realize there's more than just the Great Commission. There's a commission in Genesis. There's a commission in all four of the Gospels where he's giving them commands and saying, Go, teach, as the Father sent me, so I send you. All of those kind of statements. The most popular one is obviously in Matthew. And then this final one in Acts. Now in Matthew chapter 28, he makes this statement. Make disciples. That's the major command in the text, right? Make disciples. And he says, in your going, do that. So as you go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And then he gives a promise at the end, and lo, I will be with you always to the very ends of the age. Very command-oriented, very much do this, do this, and I'll be with you. But in Acts, he switches it up a bit. Here's what he says in Acts. It's pretty much all implied, right? You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be witnesses. You will be on your way to Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You will. Not, you could. Not, you might be. Not, you should. But, you will be. See, he doesn't say, go and witness. He says, you are a witness. That you have a task. It's part of your calling. That he is a God that is a missionary God that longs for people to know that he is furiously in love with them. And your responsibility, your calling My calling is to let people know. And there are three things I want to highlight in this text. So we've gotten kind of the background, the idea, the main gist of what's happening in this weird scene. And there's three things I want to highlight. We could go on for a while about uh, the kingdom of God at the beginning, asking if it's going to be restored and and what all the implications are in verses 6 and 7, but we're not. We could also talk about the ascension for a while. The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and that all authority has been given to Him. That everything in all realms is under His authority and control. 
But I want to settle right in that middle section that speaks to witnessing and speaks to this idea of what we are truly called to live out. The first thing I want us to highlight or to notice is that the gospel is an ever-expanding reality. The gospel is an ever-expanding reality. What I mean by that is this. It cannot be contained. You cannot put it in a box. You cannot put a lid on it. You cannot wrap it up. You cannot tie it down. It is going to expand. It is going to move. It is going to change people. It's going to change situations. That it is a reality that is present now and also will be more glorious in the future. That it is constantly moving. And the text says that it's moving outward. That from Jerusalem it will move to the surrounding area and then it eventually will move to the ends of the earth. And so Luke says it's the Spirit's presence and His power that moves that Gospel out. And it, he describes it moving to three distinct areas. And I want to highlight each of those. first area is Jerusalem. The Gospel will expand in Jerusalem. Now, we can understand this in a couple ways. For them, it was, hey, right where you are. Right where you're present. So let me say it this way. The Gospel expands wherever you're present. Your very actions are part of the movement to expand the Gospel. Your very words, things you communicate towards others, the way you talk about people. All of that expands the Gospel. Your very presence, you being with someone, you sitting with them, you waiting with them, you experiencing difficulty with them, you being present with them, expands the Gospel. This last Tuesday... I had the privilege of uh, going to Willard Elementary School. Willard has this program called the Watchdogs Program. For those of you that don't know the program, it's not just finding big, strong dads to come in and guard the school, although you'd probably suspect that. But rather, it is uh, all about dads coming in and being involved in classrooms, and it stands for Dads of Great Students. And and so you're reading in your classrooms, you're doing math, you're like hanging out in the lunchroom, you're going out and playing kickball and like destroying everybody. It's awesome, right? <laughs> and uh, so it, it's like this thing that dads love to do and teachers are excited that uh, all these fathers are there. And I was sitting at lunch, because you have the privilege of kind of sitting with your kids during lunch. And so I was sitting across from Jack. I was at a table with like about six boys. And... Uh, we're sitting there, we're just talking about what you talk about with fifth grade boys, which is kind of like sports and what's coming next and you know, what they enjoy doing and famous people, that they, you know, sports figures and all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, this kid, like two down from Jack, asked me a question and he goes, are you Jack's dad? And then I said, yeah. And he goes, well, like, is for real, dad? And I said, yeah, but what do you mean for real, dad? And he's like, well, you know, it's real life, dad. And I'm like, well, explain that. What do you mean? He goes, well, I, I mean, I don't have a dad. I've never met my dad. I live with my mom, and, and so I don't know my dad. I said, okay. And before I could say anything, the next kid said, oh, I have a stepdad, but he's not my for real dad. And then, like, another kid is sitting next to us, and, like, this whole group is going, yeah, but you're his for real dad? And they just kept saying it. And then one of the kids was like, yeah, I don't, 
I don't know if I really know any for real dads. Your very presence. I didn't have to do anything for the gospel to move forward. I didn't have to do anything to begin to have an influence. I didn't have to do I just had to be there. Your very presence among people begins to open doors for conversation, begins to see the gospel expand, begins to... I mean, I would have loved to enter into a conversation to say, you know what, I actually have two dads. And the one has never made a mistake. He's the most incredible father you'd ever know. But to, to think about how easy it is to move into this place where your presence moves the gospel. The second little section is he said it's going to be in Jerusalem, but it's going to be in Judea and Samaria. What's interesting about the way that he writes it is he doesn't say it's going to be in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then two, but he lumps together Judea and Samaria into one. So it's going to expand in Judea and Samaria. He lumps them together. Now that might not be interesting to many of you, but for those Bible historians in the room, there's this clear understanding that the people of Samaria were deeply despised. They were looked down upon, right? They were half-breeds. There was this racial and ethnic tension. There was a division. People hated them. In fact, if you, had to, you didn't even want to walk through this section of Samaria. So you would extend your journey by a couple days just simply to not walk through the area where those people live, right? There was just deep hatred, animosity that existed among the people. And so Jesus is saying, and it's a bit radical, He's saying that the Gospel is going to expand to both regions simultaneously. It's going to happen together. You want to be apart, but it's going to happen together. That God moves in a way where the Gospel expands to both groups simultaneously. So think about it this way. Let's just imagine for a moment that everyone in Spokane City didn't like anybody that lived in the valley, let's just say, hypothetically, right? And so, <clears throat> you don't want to be in the valley, so if you have to go to like Post Falls, you drive around the valley, you just want to avoid it, you don't shop there, you don't talk to people there, right? But he, what Jesus is saying is like, it doesn't matter if you live in the valley or if you live in the city, the gospel's going to grow and expand in those places at the same time. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat or Tea Party, it's going to expand all the same to all people. doesn't matter if you're for abortion or against it, if you're for gay rights and union or against it. doesn't matter if you're a husky or a cougar. It doesn't matter, right? The, the gospel's going to extend to all people together. It's going to move into the places where there's division and bring healing. It's going to restore relationships where there's brokenness. That's what the gospel does. So he says, not only is it there where you're present, but then if you move it a step further, it's there really bringing healing. And then the last point under it is he says it's going to extend to the very ends of the earth. Now this could be seen in two primary ways. The first way is or geographical. The second way is uh, the idea of being subversive. Okay? So if you look at the geography of it, it's simply the idea that it was started in Jerusalem then it would expand to the surrounding area and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. For us, it would be like it starts in Spokane, moves to the northwest, then to the whole United States, then it begins to go into other areas of the world, all the way to the Amazon jungles and, and 
in small little uh, islands and into to Africa and to East Asia, and you get the idea, right? It's expanding. But there's another way of looking at it, which is perhaps the way Luke intended it, which is a little bit more subversive, where he's basically saying that this gospel is going to go through this whole region, and it's going to tear through divisions, it's going to tear through broken relationships, and it's going to get to the place where it goes all the way to Rome and turns it upside down. See, all throughout that time, Caesar was often described as the Son of God. Caesar would say that on his birthday, the date of his birth was the beginning of good news for all people. That he was the Savior of the world. These, might, these phrases might be familiar to you at some point, right? All of these things he would say. And Luke would say all these things back about Jesus. Where he would say, hey, his birth brought the greatest news. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one who is king. He, you know, so he starts like defying the empire. And so he's saying in this very text that the gospel that you've heard, the gospel that you've seen, is going to go into Rome and it's going to turn it upside down. Or, another way of saying it, the gospel will be taken to the places where it's intended to be put to death. You're trying to destroy it here? Well, that's where the gospel is going to go. You're trying to, to put it out? You're trying to destroy it, to persecute it? That's where it actually becomes most alive. You want to hide it? Ruin it? That's where it actually flourishes. And so he's saying the gospel is going to move and expand, and it is this ever-expanding reality, and the Spirit of God will move in such a way that you can't stop it. The second big idea in the passage is that you will be my witnesses. So not only is the gospel this ever-expanding reality, but the second idea is you will be my witnesses. Now he uses the word witnesses, which is interesting because, again, he could have chosen other words and it would totally change the meaning. Let's just imagine that he would have said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my preachers. That would totally change the way that you understood the passage, right? Or if he said, and you will be my disciple makers. Or if he said, you will be my missionaries. All of those imply something completely different, right? But in this particular passage, and in this final words to his disciples, he says, you will be my witnesses. Very simply, a witness is someone who has to give an account of what they've experienced. Just give an account of what we've experienced. So Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. To who? The answer to that is to everyone. Everyone you come in contact with, all the way to the ends of the earth. About what? That's another question. What are we to be witnesses about? You tell me. What are we witnessing about? Let's rattle off four or five things. Love? Good. I said I heard two at once. Life change, transformation, the good news of Jesus. What else? Wonder, nice. Forgiveness, good. Hope. Very simply, we are to be witnesses to the life of Jesus. In fact, the disciples in First John made this statement. Basically, they said, and you can read it as I just paraphrase it in my own words, that 
what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have walked, who we've walked with, what we've heard, all of that we are declaring to you. It became manifest among us. We saw it. We witnessed it. And we declare to you the life of Jesus. That's to witness. But we're also witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that this man who lived and walked and moved among us, lived a perfect life, gave his life for us, came back to life, conquered the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, while all of us are staring up, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling everything. We give testimony or witness to the resurrection of Jesus. We give testimony to grace, to love. I think love being one of the other major core things we witness to, right? That God is furiously in love with all people. That He desires to be in relationship with Him. That He longs to be connected. That's what we testify to. That's what we witness about. Which takes us to our third point and final. Not only is the gospel an ever-expanding reality, not only are we called to be witnesses, but witness implies risk. Witness implies risk. Now, you might think I'm just making this point up because I want to talk about it, but I'm not. Okay? It's a little bit more hidden. You're not going to see this one unless you actually read it in the Greek. But the, word, the Greek word for witness in this text is the word martis. You might have heard a familiar word. This is where we get our word what? Martyr. That changes things a bit, huh? So he says to them, you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He talks about it quite a bit, actually, in the book of Acts. There's another passage in Acts chapter 22 that says this, For you shall be his martyr or his witness unto all men of what you have seen and heard. Later also in Acts 22, Paul is talking and he said, And when the blood of your witness or your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I was also standing by and consenting to his death. See, witness implies risk. Witness and risk are soulmates. Or if you find one, you're going to find the other. It's like they're holding hands together constantly. It's always there. In this text, we just talked about it. If you witness to the ends of the earth, it implies risk. I was talking with Aaron, who's here this service. I talked about her in the first service as well. I was talking with Aaron the other day, having coffee and talking about her going to Australia. She doesn't have much longer, and she will be over there working again. She's been with Campus Crusade. She'll be over there again. And I started asking her different questions. And I always like asking questions that, um, you know, you have to, like, share something. And so I said, hey, what, is, what are you most looking forward to? But then I asked her this one, what are you least looking forward to about going back? And I remember what she said was, family. I'm going to miss family. I'm not going to be there for Christmas. I'm not going to be there for Thanksgiving. I'm going to miss birthdays. I'm going to miss family. And um, I think I asked her, like, well, then why go? You know, just kind of test her out a little. <laughs> why go then? I mean, we could just pack this up right now and call it a day, and you can find a job around here and 
hang out? And, and she didn't even have to answer, did she? And it was like, I'm compelled to go. I'm called to go. I have to go. Christ's love compels me. I, I need to go back. People are waiting. They're, they're wanting me to be there. But witness implies risk. It implies sacrifice. It implies maybe potentially losing something. I don't think that was ever more clear for me than when I was about 13 years old. I was around 13. I, uh, there was a day where we didn't have school. I think it was like a Saturday. And um, I don't remember some of the details about the exact date or time. But I remember like it was yesterday, I was playing around, I was messing around, and I came into my dad's office. He's sitting at his desk. I sit down in the chair across from him. I was there about 30 seconds, and I remember the phone rang. Now, you have to understand, my dad is a very outgoing, talks very loud, is excitable. It doesn't matter if it's like in person or on a phone. He's just like, man, oh, it's so good to see you. It's so good to hear from you. So he picks up the phone, and he starts in his usual tone. He's excited, says hi, realizes who's on the other end. Oh, man, it's so great to hear from you. And then all of a sudden, like, everything in the room changed. I could see the, the, there was like, almost like this weight that came in the room. My dad's expression completely changed. He started to speak in very hushed tones. He was very quiet. He listened most of the time uttered a few words here and there. I understand, yes, thank you, you know. And then hung up and just said nothing for a moment. As a 13-year-old, I'm looking and I'm going, something's not right, but I have no idea what it is. Then he proceeds to tell me that his brother's dead. Now, my uncle was a missionary to Bogota, Colombia, And so he began to recount what had happened. They had just gotten a report that was the president of the mission organization that was on the phone with him. And so my dad started to share the story with me that he had just heard. And through tears, he talked about how the gospel was moving forward with great power among the people of Bogota, Colombia. The people were getting saved, that more and more people were becoming a part of the church. And then my uncle had led this grower, a drug grower to the Lord. And this guy radically changed his life, but he realized, I can't get out of this business. So one night he went and he torched his whole field. And the cartel came to him, cartel came to him and he said, hey, I, I got nothing, my field's gone. And then he started over as a different type of farmer. That led to another farmer accepting Christ, which led to another field being burned, which led to another one being burned, which led to another one being burned, which led to not a very happy cartel. And one night my uncle was on his way back from a Bible study, walking back home, and he never arrived. They found him shot in a field the next day. And for the first time in a very profound way, the idea of witness and risk being married really hit home. But see, that's not the end of the story, right? So he had a wife, he had three kids, three daughters. They all moved back home to the States. They lived here. Two of them decided they were going to be missionaries. So they studied to prepare to go to the field. One of them ended up in Bangladesh area right now. She's doing 
Bible translation, the other one got married, prepared to head back. Can you guess where? Bogota, Colombia. Right back to the very people who killed her father. Right back to say, hey, guess what? We're back. And God loves you even more than he ever did before. And I love you too. And you need to know about this Jesus. Because see, witness implies risk. Now, it might not cost you your life. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you money. I mean, I know people in our community that give away 25% of everything they make. Why? Because they're compelled to. Why? Because they want to see the gospel move forward. Why? Because why hold on to it? It might cost you your status in the community. It might cost you comfort. And I know some of you live in neighborhoods that aren't on the top ten neighborhood list, right? You live in neighborhoods that you could easily move out of. But you go, no, I'm here. And there's cost, there's risk. I'm okay, because I'm compelled to. See, for all of us, it's going to cost something. And the question is, what? Because witness implies risk. So you have this text, you have this weird scene. The scene goes like this, He said to them, but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And then they were all looking up, the text said. They're staring into the heavens and two men stood beside them in white robes and they said, men and women, people, why do you stand looking into heaven? And so I ask us today this question. Why do you do nothing more than stand looking into heaven? We have things to do. We have things to do. Let's pray.